Coming up next on Thriving in Recovery. That tremendous push to get away. Um, and I and then I would relax. Well, this time I had this like shift where I had now a pull, a pull towards something I wanted. So uh, it was a real transcendent moment for me. Hey friends, welcome to another episode of Thriving in Recovery. I'm your host, Bryce Givens, joined alongside my co-host, Robbie Mitchell. Today we have a special guest, Cameron Lundstrom who is an entrepreneur, a certified peer support specialist, and a personal trainer. Cameron is also a seasoned vet in the seven habits, and he is also a core group member, as well as a Gulf War veteran, so literally a seasoned vet. Uh, Cameron's story is fantastic. I really hope you enjoy it. He shares his journey to recovery, the lessons that he's learned along the way, and the advice that he has for others who are still struggling. We really hope you enjoy this episode. So Cameron, how you doing? I'm good. How are you, Bryce? Doing well. Uh, so yeah, jump right in. Let's hear a little bit about your story and what's brought you to this podcast here today. Cool. Um, well, my name is Cameron Lundstrom. I, uh, like uh, most people in recovery, um, I kind of started out on the dark side. I went through some childhood trauma and um, that kind of led to a path of... Um, criminal behavior and substance abuse. Um, my mom was an addict. I, uh, uh, you know, I had some separation there. I, I became a ward of the court in California uh, when I was taken away from my mom and uh, wound up in uh, the California Youth Authority, which is where my biological dad found me and brought me out to Colorado. And uh, everything was good for a little while. You know, I tried to stuff my emotions and stuff down and and got tried to get through high school and, and things like that. and um i uh i met a girl started a family um you know and i smoked a little weed and uh drank some drank some beer but that was about it and then i went off and served in the gulf war uh desert shield desert storm um amphibious ready group three came back and um i didn't reintegrate very well and I, i'm not, i've never disrespect any of my uh brothers and sisters who served by saying that i suffered some great battlefield trauma it really wasn't it. It was just the experience, I think, of being separated and everything started to bring out that trauma again. And uh, when I came back, uh, I got involved heavily with alcohol first and then uh, and then drugs. And my life just spiraled, man. Uh, you know, broke up my family, um, about 20 years of addiction and criminal behavior and uh, went in and out of prison several times. And, you know, each time I got into prison, I wanted to change. Like I had this tremendous push. To get away from what I didn't want, um, and I would. I push really hard, and I, you know, I'd be in there. You know, the, the actual truth of the, the the story is is that um, they tried to give me as many breaks as they could because I was a veteran, and that really didn't serve me very well. Uh, you know, only getting little sentences because you know I I would do six months in the county, and then I do eight months in in the joint. And what what are you going to do in eight eight months? Like I couldn't even get into programs. You know what I mean? It's like. Uh, it was just, a, I did that three times. I was in and out in like two years and didn't really get anything done. Didn't change my character. Um, and, but kept spiraling, kept eating away at my character. And then in, in 2011, I, um, I committed some very serious crimes for which I was looking at the rest of my life. Um, about 600 years is what I was facing. Um, and that got my attention, right? Uh, when you're, when you're considering having to die in a concrete box, um, I knew it was, uh, they were serious and I needed to really take a look at myself. And so I started not only 
started my recovery uh, May 20th, 2011. That was the last day. It was actually the night before my birthday, uh, my 42nd birthday, uh, May 21st is my birthday. Uh, we were actually going to go out and celebrate, but got bumped up and got into some serious stuff. Um, but I wound up with a 30-year crime of violence sentence. And um, that gave me the substantial time that I needed to really rebuild myself as a human being. And, uh, you know, at first, when you're looking at that kind of stuff, it's like, I, I was still at, at that point, I was still at, at the beginning, or not at the beginning, but in my stages of victim stance, right? I mean, I, they broke the law when they convicted me. They, um, they were just sick of me. Uh, I had been in and out of Jefferson County probably eight times in that in that span, and they were just sick. So they just hit me with everything they could. And um, and I get it now. Right. I was stuck. But um, that, uh, you know, I found a book. I like to tell this story. Actually, uh, I teach the seven habits of highly effective people for the parole department. But my story with that book goes back even further. I um, my dad mailed me that book when I was on the way back from the Gulf War. And, uh, you know, he was going, he was getting his MBA. And uh, this was in like 1991. And it, that book was originally written for business. And so he read it. He thought it was great, personal character, um, uh, purposeful life, you know, that kind of thing. He mailed it to me. I read it. But, you know, I was a 23 at the time. I really couldn't institute it as habits in my life. Um, but when I found it again, which was in Jefferson County while I was facing that time. I, I had a meeting with my, um, my lawyer and she, uh, she ran up the tally of years that I was going to get hit with. And, uh, I was of course depressed, right? I went back to my cell. I couldn't sleep anymore. And, um, I asked the cop, man, it was like two o'clock in the morning. I'm like, Hey, Hammersmith, man, can I go get a book off the cart? And they, and they knew me so well. They're like, yeah, make it quick lunchroom, you know, let pop my door. And I went down there and on the book cart in Jefferson County Jail, I found a copy, the very edition, not the very copy, the very edition my dad had sent me. And I knew, man, I felt right there that my dad was talking to me. He had died about eight years earlier and I got chills and I picked that book up and I started to turn away. And there was another book sitting right next to it. And I could hear my dad's voice. He says, take that one, too. Um, and it was Sun Tzu's The Art of War. And so I grabbed up those two books and I felt right there that one of them was to help me fight my case, right, to defend myself. And the other one was uh, to rebuild my character and actually to kind of like be worthy of a second chance. And so I started right there that night um, on my path of personal development. Um, and I worked through that book the first time while I was still in county. I had to fight, fight. Uh, it took me 15 months to fight my case, wound up with 30 years as a crime of violence, but I had had a good start at character development in that first year. And when I get got back to Buny, I'd been in there a few times. I uh, I was able to start progressing. Um, but the ironic thing is, man, I, I, I was really into dealing with the issues that had brought me into addiction. And um, all those previous times I had been in pre prison, they had told me that I didn't qualify for the TC program because I had too little time. I had tried. I had tried to go to Pier 1. I had tried to go into the TC program. They're like, man, no, you only have 11 months. You you, you need a two-year commitment or something, right? Well, this time I get down with 30 years, and they tell me, you can't go because you got too much time. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> They're like, yeah, 
wait till your five years to your parole eligibility date, then we'll put you in the program. And at first I was like, well, you know, I, I wrote my congressman, like I, I wrote congressman, I, I, like I, I, uh, I snuck into the uh, peer one meeting. Um, uh, I tried to make some moves, but, you know, eventually I realized that, you know, I needed to do what I could with what I had. And, uh, and so I, I worked in vocational, got my, uh, got my certificate certification in uh, welding and then was able to transfer to Fremont where they had a, where they had a seven habits class. And so I started to teach it in there. Right. And I started once again, develop myself. Right. We're talking about principle centered. We're talking about understanding what, what principles are loyalty, honor, strength, courage, compassion, service. Right. That's a big one for me realizing when I sat in there and I realized all the carnage I had caused, not only in my family, but in my victims' lives and, and, and all these things that had happened, man, uh, I knew and felt within me that I needed to, to do something about that. Right. You felt, felt a, a compelling need. Um, and then in 2017 or 16, well, actually it was 16. I felt, I found a lump in my neck. And, uh, you know, uh, I don't know if you guys, you guys have both been in, right? Uh, you, uh, yep. uh, DOC medical is a little, little slow at times. And it took them 15 months to send me to a doctor. And by that time there were three lumps. And, uh, as soon as I went into the doctor's office, this little lady in Pueblo, right? Uh, I thought for sure they're going to send me to some hack. They sent me this lady in there and she's like, I know what that is. Uh, she talked to me for like five minutes and she's like, I know what that is um that's metastatic squamous cell carcinoma um it's got a five-year survival rate i think you've had it for two years we're of course do some biopsies but i see this all the time and so i rode back on that that bus well actually it was a, a van shackled thinking i had three years to live and 14 years before i even saw the parole board um and so that was a major paradigm shift right if you guys are familiar with the seven habits that realization um the, of our limited time right and we're all we're all born with a death sentence right so that had a tremendous effect on me uh thinking that i was going to die in in there uh before i had a chance to get out and so i just started giving everything i had away inside I started working with my brothers like literally in the pod just sharing everything listening learning how to listen um expounding on things uh helping guys with their cases helping guys with with what they're doing, getting into recovery, get working with their with the working with their book list from TC program, um, all of those things. And I kind of really felt found my purpose. Like what I mean is like all those times before when I had that tremendous push to get away, um, and I and then I would relax. Well, this time I had this like shift where I had now a pull, a pull towards something I wanted. So uh it was a real transcendent moment for me. Um and luckily, uh, you know, when you start doing right, uh, when you start working with source energy uh, in harmony with source energy, good things happen, man. And I ended up beating the cancer, uh, did uh, did surgery. I don't know if you guys can see that on the camera or even if the podcast is going to be video. But uh, I did surgery first and then uh, seven weeks of chemo and radiation. Um, I lost 38 pounds in those 30, uh, seven weeks. But uh, I'm cancer free now. Uh, which is amazing. Um, and then I got back into court and they uh, paroled me. I, I actually went back into court and they took 20 years off me. It was amazing. They, they were like, uh, 
we're ready to do your 35C hearing today, Mr. Lundstrom. But if you'll let us, we'd like to resentence you based on what you've done while you've been in prison. And uh, and so I took a chance at that. And um, they took up, they took 20 years off me and I was paroled my first time up. So wow. in my, as I look back, right, I look back at where I was, the, the, the scumbag junkie thief that I was. Um, and the man I am today, I, I really don't think there's any way... I could get here from there without going through all of that. Right. Um, that's kind of how I see the, see life now. Like we bring to ourselves, what is our own, right? That comes from the inner, our inner world. And so life isn't full of mistakes, man. It's full of lessons. And you just have to start paying attention and try to understand what the universe is giving you. Um, and then learn from it, what you're supposed to. Um, here, I'm not sure if that's mine. Um, but uh, when I got out, uh, I, uh, I started working uh, with some of my brothers that were on parole and some of my brothers that were still out on the street, you know, trying to spread the recovery that I had found and the lessons I had found. And um, that actually led me to do some work for a lawyer that had represented me. And um, uh, it was on a dependency and neglect case. Do you guys know what that is? Is it that's like, like a, that's like. No, no, no. It's uh, it's DHS. So we're talking about parents with substance abuse issues who have their kids taken away. And um, really, this was like, uh, like, once again, I thought I think source put that right in my path because I was I was a child. Uh, I was raised in the welfare system, right? Child welfare system. Um, and then I went through it again as an adult when I was in my active addiction. Right. I, I had to deal with not only my own kids. But I also one of my girlfriends went through the whole system. I had to ride with her on that as well. So I had this experience of being both as a child through the system and as an adult. And uh, and I worked with this guy and uh, I was able to help him reunify with his kids. And uh, the lawyer is like, hey, uh, the ORPC has got a uh, grant from the federal government to start a parent advocacy program. You should interview for the job. And I did. And um, they gave me the contract. Man, I was a. Uh, uh, I was in a two hour um, interview with four lawyers and college grads and social workers. And uh, and they I walked out of there and three minutes later, they said, come back in here. And, uh, so I was the parent advocate for the entire state of Colorado for 2020. Um, I helped pilot the program and uh, I've trained uh, 20 uh, uh, coaches or advocates since then. Um, and now we're going to we're just starting a third class here next year. Um, so that's actually how I got my start in the field, uh, actually making money doing it. Right. I kind of feel like once you find your passion, like you're always working in it, right? Like I try to explain people when I do my workshops is that I, this, cause people watch me get all jazzed up, right? I start getting all fired up and I'm having a good time. I'm moving all over the place. And they're like, have you been drinking coffee, man? It's like eight o'clock at night. And I'm like, no, I love this. This is me. Right. Um, once you make that shift, once you become this thing, then um, uh, you're fulfilled by it. I just trust that the universe is going to provide the funds for me to keep doing it. And it has, right? So uh, I did really well at the ORPC that first year. And before, uh, actually, I started NAS Recovery Solutions, or actually, at first, it was NA, it was NAP and a sandwich. I guess I should, uh, there'll probably be a few of your uh, listeners who know that. Um, back in the day when I was running the streets, um, 
actually it was a good friend of mine who had said it to me once she's like boy you better go get a nap and a sandwich before you try running with me you know and i just was like yeah and then a couple of months later when we got bumped up that's what we got in the county jail right you land in county jail they hand you a sack lunch you go curl up on the concrete you know get a nap and a sandwich fool um but uh i kind of uh you know we said that a lot in, in the circle i was in and so i kind of adopted it as my own um back in the day i um uh, yeah, I'll share this too, because this is kind of a, a an epiphany I had. Um, I, even when I was out in my active use and I was selling drugs, I saw that there was a terminal threshold. What I mean is, is like where, you know, you're strung out, you're broke, and all of the consequences of your prior actions are beginning to mount. It's fabulous how, how it all seems to come at once, right? <laughs> now all of a sudden shit's crashing down and everything's screwed, right? The bills aren't paid, the, the relationship's trashed, the, the, the kid's in a dirty diaper, there's no food in the fridge. And so that used to tear me up, man. I would I would see these people and they're like, this is bad. And I, I wanted, I'd started doing something about it then. We called it meth makeovers back in the day, right? I would go in there and I would like feed them like you're eating, you're going to bed or give them a tranquilizer. They'd go out and, you know, with with six people and two hundred dollars, you can totally make over a two bedroom apartment in a night. Right. And uh, all I asked in return is next week when I go do that dude's house, you're going to come help me scrub their floors. And I had an entire army. You know, I'm still out there in active addiction. I'm still out there doing this. But um, I realized then that that epiphany was is that. Even though people are addicted, even if they, they fall into the lowest depths, man, they still have a care for their brothers and sisters in their heart. They're still willing to go the extra mile to, to, to save. And that really turned in on me as a veteran, right? I mean, like not in the, not only in the books you read, but the movies you watch, uh, turning your back on your friends is like con considering the, the lowest form of cowardice and treachery, right? But if you get bumped up back in the day, they used to tell you, you had to cut everybody out. You get caught talking to any of your people, you're going back. We're pulling your bond or we're sending you back. Um, now they, they've changed that up now. But back then it was like, they didn't want anybody talking with anybody. And so, and I couldn't do that, right? I couldn't, I couldn't leave my brothers and sisters behind. And so that, that sat at me, that little kernel, that, that little kernel of understanding when I got, when I got into recovery inside, that's really what I believe started to to grow right now that I'm, uh, I'm, I'm changing my character. I'm getting clean. My brain's starting to heal. I'm, I'm building, you know, responsibility and organization. And, and, uh, that is what I'm harvesting today, right. Is really that little, that little stream through time. Um, so I started a uh, nap and a sandwich back when I started with the ORPC. And then, um, uh, I did it by myself for two years. Um, and then in June of last year, I, um, I, I was doing so well and I thought I had learned enough in the community um, and in the industry that I, I brought on some people, uh, brought on coaches, uh, went from an LLC, a single proprietor LLC to like an S Corp. And, um, and uh, man, it's been an amazing ride, like uh, helping people like there's such a need out there, number one, but number two, that um uh, it brings such uh, not uh, I don't want to even say like uh, abundance right though the way I look at it is like this I work with everybody doesn't matter if I get paid or not I believe that the ones that I get paid for the ones that do have either Medicaid or the ones that like uh, either their or PC clients they pay for everybody else and as long as I haven't I haven't like thought about the funding or anything and just keep going 
then there's always plenty. Like I, I've watched other people worry about the hours, worry about all this stuff. And it just kind of shrinks that that's becomes like a limiting belief again. Right. And now they're judging, they're valuing everything based on like a, like a business. And, um, I've tried to stay away from that. That's why I hire people who run businesses. Like <laughs> that's why I get somebody who knows what they're doing with this and I can just concentrate on doing the work. Um, but it's been difficult, right? That my hardest step right now is, is learning to work on the business and not in the business. Does that make sense? I'm sure you understand that, right? Like, uh, um, every day in my life. Uh, and that's why I'm trying to do that, man. <laughs> right. Uh, so now I'm learning, I'm mostly just, co I'm, I'm learning how to just coach coaches um, and allow them to get the work, the, the, the work done uh, to be there for my clients. Um, and uh, of course I like doing workshops too. I always do. Uh, I always like to get the word out and um, teach a little bit of what uh, my path has taught me. Um, and that's really just natural law. Like, you know, I, I don't have any great um, new wisdom. It's all old wisdom. I've just found it in, my way right we all have to come into alignment of truth and the way we do that is unique to ourselves but if we can share that with others maybe they can like find their own right find their own way to it does that make sense absolutely cool um so is that an answer to your question in a nutshell did i just roll out for a while <laughs> no that's amazing man it's so crazy i mean there's so much to unpack there like obviously decades of of things to unpack but one of the things that like really stuck out to me you mentioned the word victim stance for a lot of people a lot of our listeners they don't really know what therapeutic community is or what the, the seven habits are i want you to touch more sure. on kind of what the seven habits means for you today versus what it meant for you when you were first starting to learn about it like what is the most impactful things that you've seen now that you've been in recovery for how long? 11 years? 11 years now. Yeah, yeah man. So what, what has shifted from when you first picked up seven habits until now? Like what would, what would be some insight that you could share with some of our audience? So, you know, when we, uh, well, first the understanding of, uh, uh, the path itself, right? So there are many paths to the truth that the seven the seven habits bring right it's ancient wisdom like it's the same thing as actually the 12 steps the 12 steps are a character building rebuilding uh program um there are there are all different there's uh the six something of enlightenment for the buddhas and uh there's all kinds of different teachings that bring you into alignment with with truth um so when i first read the book i thought that principles were like ethical standards right uh morals right? Uh, that you can kind of live by. But once I began to, well, first, let me, let me say it like this, right? There, so there's many levels of understanding, right? You can get some information and you can consider it or contemplate it, right? And you can say, well, maybe that's true. And then maybe you can even form a belief around it, right? Man, I'm starting to believe that. That is, maybe I, I believe that's true. And you say that, like a lot of times we say, I believe in that, but you're, there's really no evidence to support that you actually believe that because the truth is, is your actions always follow your inner beliefs, right? That's why you can say, that's why I could say I was a good dude, but then I could go out there and rob and steal from people, right? I thought I was a good dude. I believe that, but, but it wasn't in that, in accordance with really what it was, but, um, so you can have a belief, but then you can have like a knowing right? Like I know something to be true. But then there's like, when you go like to Maslow, Maslow has that actualization. 
And I actually think what that is a scientific uh, explanation of what like that old book says is called when the word becomes flesh, right? When you have incorporated it actually into your being. So that was that's actually the difference now. It took that long. And, and we can explain that through science. Like you can explain this all different kinds of way, like neuroplasticity shows like they've proven beyond a doubt that thought alone changes the structure of your neural network which is pretty amazing right when you think about that that's like some matrix shit right that i could sit there and say boom i know kung fu right and it, now i'm a kung fu dude because it's not because i learned all just because i learned all the moves but because my brain shaped that way now um and it's the same well i'll, I'll tell the story right i uh i was going through my cancer treatment in uh in drdc and uh, that place, you know, I was up in the infirmary and they had crashed my immune system. So I had to live like in a boy in a plastic bubble thing. I had this own little part of the cell uh, and they had to feed me through the slot. And um, it was a horrible time in my life. Right. They had to pump me through antibiotics for four hours of, twice a day. Man, it was horrible. But I was sitting there watching uh, PBS. I was watching a Nova uh, episode on and it happened to be on neuroplasticity, which was what they formed because of brain trauma right that science started because somebody hit their head and then they realized they had to relearn how they can use their hands and they did and the guy was like man how does that work how does the brain change itself and so all of this came from his studies but i had an epiphany i was like man that's what addiction is i mean if you're in constant use for a longer long period of time like decades or even several years your brain is formed like an addict like the, the constant stimulation from the uh, use, not only the use, but we're always thinking in the same ways, right? Or that's controlling our neural patterns. Um, and then when you go to try to get into recovery, you can't think in any differently. You don't even have the hardware, right? You can't have different thoughts. And that's why it takes years to undo the old neural network and try to rebuild new ones. So that's kind of really what the process. So if, if we know that, if we know that thought changes your brain structure, then things like honor, integrity, service, compassion, principles, things that never change, right? Principles universal. It's the same now as it is on the other side of the globe. It's And it's timeless. It's the same now as it was a thousand years ago. So that stays the same, right? Either, you know what you call somebody who's 99% honest? A liar. A liar. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's either yes or no. It's go, no go, right? Um, so when we align our, when we start contemplating and utilizing these things that don't change, then they, they change our brains, then they're not just abstract ethical thoughts or what they are is operating systems. Like if somebody contemplated service a thousand years ago, they have the same type of neural network that I do today. Think about that. It's pretty fucking cool. <laughs> <laughs> That, and especially, and it works in the recovery community too, right? We start learning about acceptance and forgiveness and all these other great principles that are inherent with recovery uh, of not only rebuild, helping yourself rebuild it, but, but also community, forgiving others, uh, owning your own, you know, all of that kind of stuff that goes with it. So when I first read the book, um, I actually... I read it four times before it tried to ever do anything to me. And the and the big step for me was the first time I did a mission statement exercise. Hmm. So I I read it and I thought, man, this is cool. And then I put the book down, right? You know what I mean? I, I was I was so busy doing other things. And then when I did it in in county jail 
And I actually have somewhere in here. Um, I actually have those papers on, on the jail county white paper from Jeffco. I wrote it out with a golf pencil, right, with no eraser, and and it's six pages long, right. And every time I made it made a mistake, I had to rewrite the whole page. So I literally wrote that thing probably 30 times in six months or more. And each time I did that, worked my neural network again and worked it again. That's what we call, uh, I teach this in one of my workshops. Um, it's called narration, right? We're basically self-narrative or what Jordan Peterson calls self-authoring, right? What we're doing is we're authoring, we're authoring our lives. And when we bring it out onto paper and you can look at it, like that's that that and then reroute it and, and go, go through again and again. It keeps shaping and shaping. And so I think that process that just came about because I was in county jail. Right. It only came about because I didn't have an eraser uh, really streamlined me. It, it fast forward me onto that process of uh, changing my inner world, my literal nature of my being to sh be shaped by these principles that are uh, are timeless and forever. So, that's that awesome, man. That's uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it did. It really, it, to in a roundabout way, like you talked about internalizing what the the message from Seven Habits is, and and I think the fundamental thing that I took from that was um, everybody has the ability to do the work and to change and to change that yes. that neural network and actually change the hardware. Um, yeah, it takes work. Yeah, it's going to take some effort. But if you're motivated enough and um, and you're willing to focus and be dedicated to changing your life, then anything is achievable. So that that's really cool. Yeah. Um, I have a question about your breakthrough. So when was it for you that like you basically, you know, some oftentimes people say rock bottom. Um, we like to look at it as like, okay, maybe you were at rock bottom right before your breakthrough. But what was it for you that was your breakthrough moment? Well, I tell you, you know, as because uh, I've kind of been asked that question a few times by like uh, the parole department um, and the, the corrections, be, you know, they ask it like, really, what what was it? And unfortunately, a lot of times I have to answer what really motivated was me. It was 600 years. Right. Um, it, my path was like this, like I, I and I, uh, I. They tried to keep me out of prison by giving me probation and everything. They tried all those things. Uh, but I forced my way right in there, kicked in that door, right? I wasn't going to have that. Uh, and, uh, but they were only giving me these little sentences, right? The first time I went down, it was just for a few months. The next time I did a four piece, I did do four piece, like, uh, uh, when I first really went to prison, prison. Um, but by that time I had already basically began to identify with this group of people, and I think it was like, I, I know you asked about this a little bit earlier about victim stance. And, and that's really where I think the danger is of going to prison, because I'll tell you what, I've never met so many victims until I got to prison. <laughs> I mean it, right? Everybody's got a story about why they're there, why they did what they did. And that's such a lock into limited belief, right? The moment I don't take personal responsibility for my actions, I don't learn the lesson. For decades, I made the same mistake over and over. I dated the same woman. Like she might have had different hair and different colored eyes, but that was the same chick I was dating the last time I was out. 
And that's because I was locked into that same loop, right? Um, so I think personal ownership, when I accepted for real uh, who I was, um, that was kind of like the breakthrough through me. And when I do, my, do talk about it in my workshops, I, I explain it like this, like, what do you need to navigate? Like, if you want to navigate somewhere, you need to only know two things, right? Uh, a lot of times, if you've taken seven habits, they'll talk about the principles of uh, compass and, and a map is only a, you know, it's not the, it's not the landscape. It's just a map. But really, if you want to navigate anywhere, you just need to know two things. You need to know where you're at and you know where you want to go, right? And if you don't know, if you're not honest enough to know where you're really at, then you're never going to get where you want to go. You may think you're in the bedroom, but you're in the basement and you're trying to get to the kitchen and you keep bouncing into this wall and you're like, man, there should be a door here. There's got to be a door here, but you're in the bedroom, dude, or you're in the bed. You know, it doesn't make sense. So that be becoming brutally honest or what they call like in the 12 steps that uh, fear, what, fearless moral inventory, that is absolutely necessary. You have to be honest with yourself about who you are if you're going to make a change to it. So I think that would really be my, um, and I did that while I was in, in that county when I got hit with that, when I got that book, right? When I felt my dad's presence again, and I had to sit there in that cell and uh, because I'll tell you, that was actually that moment, right? So the reason I couldn't sleep was that meeting I had with my lawyer, she listed out all my crimes. She goes, well, it was like she was selling a car, dude, right? She had she had all this down and then she circled the number at the bottom. You know what I mean? Like, like here's what your interest rate's going to be. And I'm like, she's like, well, you're looking at 608 years, but you want the good news? And I'm like, yeah, what's the good news? And she's like, well, the good news, it's not a life sentence. She goes, you want the bad news? And I'm like, yeah, what's the bad news? She said, the bad news is your, your co-defendant told them everything. I'm like, oh, <laughs> right? So at that point, I was at the mercy of the court. Um, and that led me to really do some inner soul searching about why I'm in this position, right? How did I get here? Well, this is a product of my choices. This is the product of who I was. And that was my breakthrough, to be honest, like that. Man, that's powerful. Yeah, super powerful. I'd love mm -hmm. to ask you about, um, in your story, you talked about these meth makeovers, right? Which like shows the character that you had, even in your addiction, that you had like a service mind um, long before you reached that breakthrough, right? Like, how did that come about? How did that start? Um, how have you carried that into your service that you give now? Yeah, so I think that like uh, I come from a military family. You know, the reason I, I kind of got uh, convinced that this would be going into the Gulf War would be a good idea was my dad. My dad was a two time non-vet, you know, and he's like, hey, man, you probably need some structure in your life. There's going to be a war in the Persian Gulf. You need to go. I mean, he actually that's how he said it. <laughs> he said there's going to be a war over there. You should go. I'm like what? <laughs> like I'm mowing, I'm mowing lawns for a living at the time. I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. He's like, yeah, pick pick a service. You're going in. I'm like, all right. Uh, but I think that 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 kind of um, indoctrination, right? You you learn how to serve your brothers. I mean, when you're off in in uh, in those situations, it's not about the necessarily the mission. It's about the guy next to you, right? That's that's why you're there. Um, I'm not there, uh, really to enforce American policy. I'm there because my brother's there and I'm going to, I'm going to be there with my brother. 
So I think that kind of adapted into uh, that mindset. Um, I uh, and that really that that feeling of um, protection, right? Um, I kind of I was an older. Yeah, this is also what I noticed in, when I was running around. Is I was older than a lot of people. Um, I you know a lot of the people that were in the the circle at that time, which really like back, we used to think there were a lot of little circles, like there was a town and, and there was Inglewood and, and then there you got the people up North and it ain't like that, bro. There's one big circle and just a lot of, a lot of, a lot of clowns in that circus. You know what I mean? Uh, and, um, I forgot where I was going with that, but, um, yeah. Uh, once I got into like a click or I always, I always felt like I was uh, there to protect people from making some really stupid mistakes. The other thing I had this, this was a lesson I learned. Um, and this is a cool story. Um, so one time I got out of prison, uh, it was probably the second, I was back on a regress or something. I got out and they just dropped me off at the bus station with a hundred dollars, right? Homeless, all that, the, the, the regular, regular story. And so I went right back to it, right? I'm like, well, I'm not doing this, right? Uh, uh, I went and got me a phone from cricket, 50 bucks. And then I went and saw my people and I went back to work. Right. But I, I didn't know anybody I'd been in for a few years. And, and so I had to kind of like meet new people and I was downtown. I was living downtown. And so I found these cats called the gutter punks. You know, any of the gutter punks? Oh yeah. Very yeah. familiar. Yeah. 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 Well, this is back in the day, right? This is in like the late nineties, early two thousands. Uh, and so some of the originals were around and, uh, but they were all younger than me. Right. So I'm in my, you know, mid thirties. Um, and, uh, share a little bit with our audience young. about what the gutter punks are and who the gutter, gutter punks are. So they were kind of like, uh, I always looked at them like, um, uh, what do you call the, like the ragamuffins from like the, exactly. uh, the, the yeah. you know what I mean? They're just street kids. They'll go down in the 16th street mall and they'll sing for coins during the day and then they'll go out and party and 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 they're just you know they're just all about the moment and then they but they do protect each other here's the pit well here's how i got to love them right so i'm out there slinging and i go down into this uh apartment that basement apartment right off the colfax right and there's probably six of them in there boys and girls and um and I, i'm i'm doing my deals and all of a sudden one of them gets a phone call and he's like hey doug a jew's getting beat up on 15th and all of them stood up at once. They grabbed weapons off the walls and they were all out the door flying. And I'm like, ooh, this looks like fun, right? And so I'm like, I start running behind them. And they, this one of their friends was getting beat up a few streets down. And these like, you know, 20-year-old girls were ready to go right into the fight with brass knuckles and go defend him. And I was like, yeah, these kids are cool, right? <laughs> so I started hanging out with them, right? And at that time, I was... um uh, I was carrying around a bag of runes. I, I'm a Satru. Uh, I'm a European pagan. And uh, I was carrying around a bag of runes. And so I started starting to throw some some spiritual energy on them, right? I teach them. Every time I do a, do, do, do a deal with them, I'd be like, pull a rune and I'll tell you about it. And they're like, oh, yeah, cool. Right. And I tell them all about it. And uh, and so we were building a, uh, a good rapport with these guys. And um, so one of the things I learned in the Gulf War was I, I would tell people I love them every time they go out. Right. You know what I mean? Because that might be the last time I saw that dude. Um, it had happened to me. It happened to me. I had breakfast with somebody, jumped on a fucking uh, helicopter, and that dude never came back, you know? And so I always said it. And the first time I said it to these kids, they looked at me like, get away from me, weirdo, you know, <laughs> you weird old man, <laughs> you know? 
And uh, but I didn't let it affect me. And I just I'm not, not I'm not like that, brother. I just love you, man. You're a good dude. And uh, and I kept I kept saying it. And so like this was over the process of like uh, a summer. And so about halfway through the summer, they'd start saying back to me, love you, Cam. Like or every time I get up to leave, everybody be like, love you, Cam. You know, I thought oh, this is cool, man. And then by the end of the summer, I heard them saying it to each other. And I was like, wow. It was like it sunk into me. One person can make a difference. One person can change things if their fortitude and their determination stay real, right? And that really, that set with me, right? And that's kind of like where, like, um, I had that thing where I felt it wasn't hopeless. Like there was a need to be real. Um, and I think that started to broaden my eyes at like the damage that the drugs were, were causing, even the drugs that I was spreading. Like it broke my heart. I seen good people, good people, like people who had jobs, who took care of their kids fall hard, you know, back in the day. And, um, and that's really what meth makeovers was about. Right. I really wanted to, um, prevent that terminal threshold from being reached. Right. I wasn't trying to judge them. That's the other problem with the system that, that really, I think kept it evolving, kept that um, that separation of us and them mentality was because it was came with the judgment. When you said you were an addict, people were like, fuck away from you, junkie. You know what I mean? Or like that whole, that whole uh, what was it? Uh, the Dare Kids program where they would show people all wrecked on the poster, right? The kids got meth sores and these, these uh, teeth are all messed up. And it basically dehumanizes people who are addicted. Right. I thought that was horrible. Like these are real human beings they are suffering. Right. Um, and I didn't want to be a part of that. I wanted to try to find my way through the solution. But like I said before, I, I was still in my own uh, drama and, and suffering, um, which is where the, the lessons are learned. Right. Uh, I think. Uh, what's his name? Um, Goggins, man. Goggins talks about that. He goes, you got to go spend some time with the suffering. Right. That's where you need to be. And that's what teaches you um is the suffering so i i don't i try when i'm when i'm doing my coaching when i'm working with people i try to be there with them but i don't try to relieve them of that struck that suffering because that's there for a reason right that's there to teach them and if i pull it off of them then i'm doing them a disservice i'm just trying to walk with them and support them so they can get through that with you know um yeah that's very powerful um so one thing I'm hearing you, a theme that I keep seeing come up is, uh, and maybe you can allude to who this might be now in your life, but it sounds to me like your your father was instrumental um, and some of these connections indirectly, potentially with, with these other individuals like the gutter punks and other people who you were surrounding yourself with, who other than you talked about going internal because you kind of are forced to do that when you're sitting in DRDC, you're by yourself or you're in County, like you're, you, you're forced to do the work internally. Who's been instrumental for you since you've been out of prison. And what does that relationship look like today? Um, well, I've had many good um, supports and, and mentors along the way. Um, and even people that like taught me through their own suffering. Right. Um, that is, that is a, a, um, a lesson to be learned too. Um, um, I think that, uh, boy, like, uh, one of them, this is a cool, cool little, um, Josie Ballinger. You guys, you guys know Jos? 
I don't. Yes, no, Josie. Okay. The name, name's familiar. Okay. Uh, well, she's in the industry too, but we ran together back in the day. Like we weren't boyfriend and girlfriend, but we were in the same cliques a few times, right? And and she's a gangster. That chick is a straight gangster back in the day. And today she's a straight gangster of love, man. She's super powerful, uh, pure coach. Actually, I, I, I didn't see her for like 15 or 20 years. And then when I went through my uh, peer coaching uh, class, she was there. And I'm like, whoa, what are you doing here? And she's like, I found the truth. And I'm like, yeah, me too. This is cool. Um, but um, I would have had, I'd have to say a lot of the seven habits core group members, like um, guys that like, you know, Dave Coleman and Rule Hunt and um, uh, Leslie and uh, like, um, and just that program, both inside and out was instrumental because it gave me the structure. So when I got out, um, I just took a job washing dishes for the first six months, right? I had been in for almost a decade. And so I knew enough not to try to bite off too much more than I can chew. Found a real easy job, real close to my house. I could walk four minutes to work. I could walk five minutes to the gym. And that's all I did um, as I reintegrated, right? Um, but I was offered a position in the original seven habits class in the Denver metro area for the parole department. And so I would bus two and a half hours each way because it was in Aurora. It's in Southeast Aurora. And I lived in Arvada and I couldn't drive. So my Wednesdays, were, I'd, I'd almost spend five hours on the bus on Wednesday to just to go help people with seven habits. And that kind of commitment and and camaraderie with everybody involved with the program um yeah i think that had a tremendous influence um, that's awesome so you you've been today, you've though, been instrumental in today, showing up for yourself man thank you today um my fiance teaches me every day man she's amazing um my fiance uh linda patterson uh she's got 24 years in sobriety um, she's an international speaker for uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, like they fly us out to places so he can she can speak at meetings. She's been invited to the World Conference next year. She's going to speak in front of 40,000 people in a stadium. Right. Wow. That's, yeah, <laughs> that's pretty cool. And uh, today, though, she helps me not only with my own stuff, because I still carry stuff, especially in relationships like um romantic relationships right i really didn't really couldn't work on that's so like i can work on myself my character and all that stuff but it's a different dichotomy when you're when you're when you're connecting with with somebody like that right right that where they call it attachment attachment strategy and stuff and so i've had to relearn like learn this is actually actually honestly this is the first healthy relationship i've ever been in, in my life right i when i got out i was in a couple of relationships that were I, I could immediately identify that they were codependent again, right? Like I still had those traits or whatever. And so I got in that relationship and I could see, wait a minute, this is this isn't. But and by that time, I had enough character and discipline to be able to hold my boundary. You know what I mean? Whereas before I couldn't hold my boundary and I would simply say, you know, I, I would stay in the relationship. Now, now I was able to say, you know what? I'm sorry. Uh, this isn't really going to work for me. And I was able to do that. And I think that the, the universe responded, right? Once it was like, you have learned that lesson. Now I will send you somebody worthy. Right. And, and they sent me Linda <laughs> and, uh, it's been amazing. She's, uh, like I said, she's a great lover, mentor, uh, you know, partner, and, uh, she's helped me absolutely grow this business too. That's amazing. I know I can relate to that. I know my fiance, Kayla, 
the same thing. You know, I was in the same position as you. I had never really been in a healthy relationship. And this, this relationship now has like opened up so many doors with just becoming a better human being, learning more about myself, being able to love myself more and being able to work uh, with another human being and an individual who brings so much to the table. And I think it's so helpful. And I know in uh, throughout this podcast, we hear uh, over and over, you know, connection, community, the same, the same keywords and the same themes are present in most people's recovery. And like having a strong, strong person um, who's instrumental in helping you live an extraordinary life is, is so important. So um, where did yeah. you guys meet? Um, actually through the business, like, uh, I was actually Josie that introduced us, right. I need some advice on, um, uh, growing the, or changing, you know, you guys work in M treatment. Uh, no, we're familiar. Yeah. yeah we're cool. familiar with M treatment. Okay. Uh, so I wanted, I, I was trying to understand it better. And, uh, Josie's like, Hey, I know somebody who's, who knows that system inside and out. And she worked for this other company and, uh, let me introduce you to her. And, she did. And I was like, wow. And then, uh, we started hanging out and, uh, the rest is history. Right. Uh, yeah. This is a really cool, uh, story. Uh, so, um, I have, my, I have two daughters, right. I was, have able to reestablish my relationships with them and it is completely amazing. Right. I didn't talk to them for a long time. Um, and, uh, my oldest, she's a super genius and she's got life figured out. And here's, here's the cool thing. So, when I went to talk to her for the first time, we started talking when I got out uh, on the phone. We had written. Uh, that's another story. That's another great story. But but when we started talking on the phone and we start hearing each other's vocabulary and the things we're talking about, come to realize she's got the same books on her shelf that I had carried all the way through prison. Like things that had got like seven habits and master key system and asking it is given. And she knew like she's a life coach. <laughs> My kid has her own podcast. She's the heart centered woman on Spotify and Apple. Um Awesome. She lives in Nicaragua. She's 33 years old. She lives in Nicaragua. She literally lives in this all beautiful wooden house with and windows above a sandy white beach where the sun sets every night. She lives in paradise, man. She's, she's really cool. So we're rebuilding our relationship. And uh, Linda and I are just starting ours. Um, and um, I want to go visit her, right? I want to go visit her. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to go see my daughter in Nicaragua. You'll be able to watch the, the shop while I'm gone. We're, Linda and I are just starting our, you know, we're just getting to know each other really good. And um, and uh, so I fly down to Costa Rica and my daughter has arranged. Uh, so she lives right on the border of Nicaragua and Costa Rica. So she's arranged for somebody to pick me up and take me to the border. And then somebody at the border, take me over to where she lives. And um and we get to the border and Nicaragua does not have an extradition treaty with America. Okay. And so when I told them my name, they can't actually find out really who I am. You know what they did? They Googled me. And so all of this, all of my crimes come up, right? Like it's all bad. Like I was on, I was on the news. I was like, it was all bad. Right. And uh, they come out and they're trying to ask me. The other thing was, is that this guy who was walking me across there, he was supposed to be able to speak English and he didn't. So now I'm trying to communicate with these guys and trying to talk to them. I'm like, no, no, I showed them my discharge from parole. I'm like, no, no, I'm off paper. I'm off paper. And so after about probably 30 minutes of trying to communicate, I even got my daughter on the phone. I'm like, here, talk to these people. All of a sudden, this, this Marine comes out, this Nicaraguan Marine, right? And he's big dude. 
and he comes out and he's got this tablet and it says on the tablet, you are unable to enter this country. Pick up your bags. You are leaving now. And I was like, it's dark. And they literally walked me into a uh, jungle. Like they walked me out of the, the, the place there, walked me down the road about a half a mile and left me under a streetlight. Like that was it. No cell service. <laughs> like I'm stuck. Like <laughs> I had to borrow a phone from somebody. Get, it cost me 250 bucks to get back to Costa Rica where I needed to get, get into a hotel. But um, I, I was like, look, I got, I got, they basically told me you can't come into this country. So I was stuck in Costa Rica for a week, which is like, I know uh, what first world problems. right? <laughs> uh, and so instead of coming back though, I called Linda and I'm like, Hey, Linda, you want to, you want to just come down? And uh, so she did. And um, that honestly was one of the best vacations I've ever had in my life. We took a great trip last year too, uh, where we went to Europe, but um, uh, spending those seven days in Costa Rica was freaking amazing. And that's really where we fell in love was that time. It's so, so it was like cool. one of those things that you think is, an obstacle is really just the universe trying to say, Hey, this is what you're supposed to be doing right now. I've, uh, I've been able to uh, talk and see my daughter since then, but um, yeah. That was a good story. Good Isn't story. it cool how just like like you said, how the universe just presents things to you when you're aligned with your true self. Um, and you can accept them, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Otherwise, otherwise you'll be like, no, this is not what I want to do. Right. And you'll try to break that. thing. <laughs> All right. I should listen to this. Right. That's awesome. Do you let me ask you this. So you're obviously like physical guy. You've talked about the gym. Um, what are some things that you're doing for yourself personally? Look at those pipes for the listeners who are only just listening. I mean, Cameron's got some hammers on him. So this is, uh, this is what 53, this is what 53 looks like guys right here, man. I love it, man. So obviously you're working out. Uh, what, what else are you doing for yourself? Like what would be the top three to five things that you focus on a consistent basis that help you to continue to make progress? First one is nutrition, right? Um, I noticed now, so I've come off sugar, um, really, um, uh, and I try to eat whole foods, right? But if I get whacked with some sugar on accident, dude, I can totally feel like like it'll mess me up. Isn't it crazy? Um, so, yeah, it is yeah. a psychoreactive drug, and people don't realize that. That is a drug. Um, uh, but definitely on, on the physical side, like uh, uh, it's nutrition, exercise, and sleep has been the huge one for me. Like I wear a CPAP. Um, I'm not like heavy, but really what I found out was it has nothing to do with how much you weigh or how much body fat you have it actually has to, to do with the size of your neck so if you've been training for 15 or 20 years and your neck is thick guess what you're probably shutting down at night and you're starving your brain for oxygen so uh that on the physical side that's that's the three i i do i make sure i i do um and then reading like i try to stay uh, uh reading uh something you know on a regular basis um as contemplation is another good one for me too uh, where I like to contemplate new ideas and concepts, which, you know, I uh, listen to YouTube all the time. Um, now, I, the only time I listen to music anymore is in the gym. Uh, otherwise, I'm listening to the great speakers and intelligent human beings in the world and trying to gain from their knowledge and wisdom, right? Uh, and there are some, dude, it's just to be alive at this age, now it's amazing. And I used to, like when I was in, when I was in my victim stance, 
man, I used to thought, man, this is, man, I should be alive at another time. Like I should have been a cowboy or all these other th times that you think you should have been more of an outlaw and all these, uh, you got all this oppression. And dude, when you wake up to the truth and be like, man, this is the land of opportunity. It's all up to you. Like you can be, do or have anything you want. You just have to decide that you are worthy of it and go get it. And there it is. Uh, you know, uh, what I like to say when I, uh, when I'm, at the workshop is like your hardest question is to figure out what fulfills you, like what your purpose is, what you enjoy. And once you do that, America will find a way to pay you for it. <laughs> like there's a way to make money, whatever it is. Like you just have to find it and then you don't have to work. Right. You just like I, I tell them, I tell guys, man, like I don't work. I, I just go be me. I get paid to be me nowadays. This is me. And uh, there's that in every form, every form. doesn't matter if you love mechanics, if you want to, you know, ride motorcycles or whatever, whatever it is, there's a way to make a good living in this country doing it. No oh, doubt. Opportunities. Yeah. Um, what are you I reading right now? Really yeah, I was just going to ask. So um, I'm, I'm focusing on a book called The E-Myth Revisited. Oh, yeah. What that is. Oh, no. Yeah, I yeah. know very well. Uh, because I'm in my transition, right? I'm trying to transition again. Um, but I also um, I read some like I just ordered a new copy of the map. Do you guys, are you guys familiar with the master key? Yep. Master, master key, Charles Hanel. Um, now uh, that book, I, I would read that book almost every day while I was in prison and go through the lessons over and over again, practice the exercises. Um, and really that's a book about manifestation and how you can align your thinking and focus and attention in, into that. Um, and basically it's just convincing yourself that you do have that kind of power um, but an, a guy just um, turned me on to there's actually another book with the same title written by somebody else. And I haven't read that one yet, um, but I ordered it yesterday and it should be here tomorrow. Um, I just did the five rings again, um, nice. which um, I use in a workshop. I have the five rings of recovery, uh, which is really cool. A uh, couple of workshops I do um, those principles. Right. Um, and all of his. Um, axioms applied to uh, strategy and recovery, right? Um, and then, um, uh, sorry, guys. Um, I also, I, I want to, I guess I could plug this a little bit. Um, I also wrote my own curriculum. So this is called The Well and the Tree. Um, this is a curriculum I wrote for um, cultivating emotional connection and in interpersonal relationships and personal development. And basically my philosophy has just been, you know, really you don't have to reinvent the wheel. All of these different programs work. Doesn't matter if it's the 12 steps, CBT, MRT, strategies for self-improvement and change. They all work to the level that the participant is engaged in the treatment, period. Like you can sit in classes all day long, but if you're not seeking the information, you won't find it. So all we have to try to do and kind of how I see myself as a peer coach is to try to raise that level of engagement. Like, let me let me cultivate some interest in your life. This is what it can be like. Look at this. Let's 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 decide kind of what we want to cultivate. What do we want to grow in life? Who do you want to be? You know, that kind of thing. And so um, this comes from a book, too. The Well in the Tree is a uh, uh, what would you call it? It's a. Um, it's not a series of essays, essays, but it was written by a college professor who was a um, mythologist and uh, um, uh, Germanic studies and stuff. And so it has a lot of the um, 
ancient beliefs from um, Europe and stuff and Twine kind of explains the representation of both the well, uh, you know, in, in uh, Northern mythology, you have the three wells uh, that feed the tree of life and what each well represents and how it feeds and um, using those kind of concepts to try to um, do the same thing. And with pe people's lives, right. We're just trying to cultivate and grow new, uh, a new future for everyone. So I, that was just a quick little plug. <laughs> I love that. So where can so people find that? Um, I'm actually uh, teaching it in a couple of IRT programs right now, um, but it's not like published or anything yet. I, what I'm trying to do is uh, I, I'm actually learning as I go, like re really what, which workshop, which work um, sheets work best, um, where, where's the give and the go, you know what I mean? So it's developing as we go, but um, yeah, I, I do it at a couple of treatment centers and then uh, Step Denver, uh, starting up in January, I'll be teaching it in there. So awesome. So what are the three wells that uh, feed the, the tree of life as a person? So you've got um, Earth, which is you can almost say it like Earth, right, which is like really what primarily that book is about. And, and that is like the well of ancestry, the well of souls. Right. So the spiritual well. Um, and then you have Bergelmir, which is like the well of knowledge. Right. Um, so that's uh, the well of like, um, um, or excuse me, uh, Bergelmir is like the well, well of um, uh, action. And, um, and now you're, you see, you asked me a question and you, and you got me. Uh, um, and I'm not going to remember it right now. It's where Odin threw his eye. Uh, the well of knowledge uh, is where Odin put his eye, but I can't remember. Oh, Mimir. Mimir's well. Ha. Tried to stump me, didn't you? I'll see you. <laughs> so it's uh, spirit, knowledge, and action. Yeah. And how yeah. do you relate that to recovery? So I primarily am using the, the well of um, basically what we're doing is we're cultivating emotional and spiritual energy into our lives again. So this is my my own realization is that my addiction and my subsequent isolations created these barriers for me to connect not only with myself, but with other people, right? That way I could walk away, right? I could walk away to people. I, we got so used to losing everything and everybody in our lives, man, we had to build up these scars, right? And so when you get into recovery, when you're actually trying to reestablish your life, you still got these barriers, Right. And, and we don't understand a lot of times that we are the ones that have to take them down. Right. They're there. We put them there or the addiction and the, the life we live because of it put them up. But um, so it's kind of hard to engage in our lives. Like we, we fall into that victim stance of hopelessness. Like why even try the, the fuck it's right. That's really where that terminal threshold is. Right. When when all of those bad things are happening and you stop trying anymore because you've said this is too much, um, that's that's the break I wanted to try to prevent. And so I do that with an emotional connection. People need to get fired up and engaged. And they start need to start seeking. Like when I go in to talk to people, I'm not trying to to find disciples or followers or anything. I want to say something. I'm hoping I can say something. And that'll spark their curiosity and then they'll go read the book and then they'll go search for the knowledge because that's how they're going to get it. They're only going to get it if they look for it. So I'm just trying to shine a light on it and maybe they'll be like, what is that? That is cool. Let me see. What is that? And then they'll get it. 
Um, this is a great piece of knowledge that Linda shared with me. This is how amazing this woman is, right? So we were talking uh, after a workshop. I was talking after, it was actually, I think, one of the well in the tree workshops. And I was talking about how I think I'll present that a little bit different this time because I don't think they were catching it or what I was trying to say. And she said, Cameron, you get to decide what you say. You don't get to decide what they hear. And I was like, oh, <laughs> like some some Jedi shit, right? Or <laughs> something uh, powerful. Uh, but she's right, right? Because everybody's at their own stage that it's the universe. It's their path that is deciding how they're receiving the information. Um, but really, that, yeah, my goal is with the well in the tree is just to try to spark people's investment and engagement in their own life by showing them the different things that are available and and hopefully um, uh, having them start to make some decisions, right? One of the worst things that we uh, fall into is procrastination. And procrastination really isn't a problem. It's a symptom of a problem. I mean, if you procrastinate, it's because you don't know where you're going. Once you make a decision and you know where you're going, you can make, you can boom, 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 then it's easy. But if we're just like, we don't care. We say F it. We're just going to ride the tide. I think it, I think it was Seneca. Seneca said like 2,500 years ago, he said, um, to the man that doesn't know which port he's sailing to, all winds are unfavorable. Like, that's some truth, man. If you don't know where you want to go, then that's easy to be negative about everything that comes your way. So. I love that. Bring it, bringing in the Stoics. Love it. So, uh, what best advice would you give someone seeking to thrive in their recovery journey? What's the best piece of advice you can give someone? Set a goal, right? You have to have something to aim for. If you don't have a clear vision of what it is you're after, like what does recovery look for you? Then you're like, that's what we're saying. If you don't, you haven't picked a path. You haven't made the decision. So carve that out first. It's like uh, Joe Dispenda said, that says you want to match a clear intention with an elevated emotion, right? But first you have to have the clear intention that mind, um, uh, the mental creation is always the first creation, right? Uh, and that includes with ourselves, right? First, we have to decide, have to intentionally create what we are think of what we want, and then we can start striving for it. So I think that was like, and that was the power of the mission statement for me. Right. The moment I did that ex exercise and clearly wrote out what it is I wanted to be, do and have, how I saw the world and all those things, then it was like a template I could hold up and easily make a decision and know where I needed to go. Love that. I have a question for you, and we ask a lot of our guests this question. Cameron, what is the meaning of life? Um. The meaning of my life or all life, right? Uh, I would say it's the elevation of consciousness for as like on a on a large scale. Like uh, I would think the meaning of my life, um, I think is is part of that too. Like recognizing that I am not only just a piece of it, but I'm also all of it at the same time. And I don't mean like in a kind of a self centered kind of way. What I mean is like I realize that. Um, Every one of us, this is the amazing part of life is that we're all so connected that we're that each one of us is just like this little atom in it. And yet it's like a hologram, right? So in a hologram, each pixel of the hologram is the entire picture itself. 
It's like if you take a drop of seawater, everything that's in that little drop of seawater is in, is everything that's still in the ocean, right? It's just at a different level of it. And so I kind of think that uh, life in general is to grow that ocean. I think we're, we're an expanding consciousness. We are conscious creators and um, that love is the energy uh, of the universe and that fear is the dark side, right? I think that, um, you know, a lot of people say that hate is the opposite of love, but I think that hate is a derivative of fear. Like you're, you're not going to hate something if you don't fear it. Uh, and I think that's the killer. So, um, um, yeah, that, that, I don't know. That's kind of a hard question. What's the meaning of life? Like, what, it, the, what is it like Willow? Do you remember that movie Willow where he's like, what is the secret of life? Which one of these fingers holds the key or whatever? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that was a great answer. That was perfect. That was awesome. All right. So you've talked about NAS. Um, so what's called what? NAS recovery systems. Or solutions. Solutions. Love that. Solutions. That's where solution oriented. I I love that. So uh, where can people find you online? Where can they learn more about NAS? Where are you at in the world? I know you've talked about a couple books. Uh, What's on the agenda for you? How can we help promote you? Right on. I appreciate that. Um, Yeah. So uh, we have, uh, I have a website, NAS Recovery Solutions. Um, at dot com. And then um, I also have a, a another company uh, that I'm just starting out called uh, um, Free Range Recovery, um, which is going to be kind of more of a um, um, public speaking and kind of um, I'm going to hopefully do a YouTube thing. Right. We're going to move that into YouTube where I can reach more people um, with my message. But um, we're all over the metro area. We've got coaches in Springs and soon to have one in Fort Collins. Um, and, you know, we just want to be part of the community, a part of the landscape. You know, that that's it's a tremendous time to be in recovery or at least to be seeking recovery. There are all kinds of ways to get it now. Right. There is all kinds of flavors. There is uh, people out there with big hearts and, and love and resources who are there to help and guide you. And we just want to be a part in there and support everybody finding their path. Um, so. Yeah, I, I reach most of my clients through word of mouth or um, uh, DOC. I'm an approved vendor for the Department of Corrections. I think you guys are too, aren't you? Yeah, we uh, are. So approved treatment provider or whatever, um, which is kind of amazing, right? They were like trying to kill me <laughs> a few years ago. And now they're like, yeah, we'll pay you to take care of people. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, I like that. I'm going to drop this little thing out there too. This is kind of cool. This happened to me a couple of months ago. So... I have been selected, nominated and selected by the American Bar Association as a reunification hero for the country. <laughs> like, uh, so they pick one every month. And um, last in August, uh, they uh, one of the lawyers I work with, with the, at the ORPC uh, gave, put, told them my story and that what I did with this client that I had been working with with her. And um, they selected me for this, uh, this thing. So if you go to the American Bar Association's uh children and the law center um yeah i'm there it's kind of cool amazing man that's awesome yeah and that actually happened like in jefferson county court where like they were trying to like throw away give you 680 (laughs) years man that's crazy 608 years that's wild things things come full circle um well i believe that right yeah 
You, yeah, you like, have to. You know, I kind of feel it like this. Like, I, I have regrets. I absolutely regret being a neglectful father. I neglect the way I treated women. I neglect the crimes I committed and the people I, I, I scared and hurt. Um, but the, but the truth that I feel is that that was the way I got to be now. And if I was to hold on to that shame and guilt and that guilt would still be traumatizing, right? Then that's all I'd be giving away. Like when I was in my active addiction or in my trauma, that's all you can give anybody is your trauma. But once you accept it and begin to heal from it, then you can start sharing healing to people. And if you think about it like that, that's really the purpose of all of our trauma and suffering is, right? Is because something happened bad to me. And now that I've healed from it, maybe I can help something, somebody who something bad happened to them and they're going through theirs. And we all do that together, right? That, that, that actually, that means that like our suffering is for a reason. Like it just doesn't, it's just not something you have to go through. Like there's a purpose to it. And if you fulfill that purpose, then it then it creates the beautiful landscape and and the the tree, right? The tree of life, right? That's really what uh, I was getting at. <laughs> I love it, man. Well, Cameron, this has been super fun. You're an awesome dude. You're super passionate. That that is obvious. Like I I love your authentic self, um, and your story is amazing. And I think you have the potential to help so many people. Um, and I, you know, just want you to know that whatever I can do or whatever Robbie can do, um, we would love to be able to support you in any way that we can. Uh, we love your mission and what you stand for. And, um, yeah, I, I just love your, love your message, man. And your story is amazing. So thanks for taking the time to come on today and share some of your time with us and look forward to working with you in the future. I appreciate that brother. It's really an honor, right? Uh, man, you guys are doing great work. You kind of led the way with that. And uh, it is an honor for me to be here and be able to talk to you guys today and um, and just be part of the landscape with you. You know, um, we are we are. What do they say that uh, uh, something of equals like it, it takes all of us. Right. It takes a village. It takes a community to heal it. Right. Uh, same thing. So I appreciate you. And uh, thanks for having me on. Awesome. Have a good one. Cool.